Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello there and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Are you in the middle of World Cup fever? Well, I mean, it's only just started, in fairness. I'm coming up here to record on Thursday evening just after the opening game. Uh, Russia beat Saudi Arabia 5-0. I have to admit, I went out at 3-0. I kind of seen enough at that point. It was not the greatest game of football I've uh, I've ever watched. So it was time to walk the dogs. And by the time I got back, game was over. Russia had scored another two goals. Pretty great way to start the World Cup if you're the host of the tournament. 5-0 win at home. Everybody's happy. Uh, there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, about the Russian team being over the hill and too old and destined to fail and all that kind of stuff. But 5-0. That's all right. You can deal with that. If you're a Russian fan, I'm sure you're very, very happy this evening. Not so much if you're a uh, Saudi Arabia fan, um, but I don't know what your expectation would have been going into that game. Hopefully, there's better to come in terms of the football on display uh, during the rest of this World Cup. There's some good games tomorrow. Uruguay-Egypt, I think, is on. Portugal-Spain, that should be a good one. But I, already, I think we've had one of the images of the World Cup so far when the first Russian goal went in, the cameras cut to the stands, and there, sitting in the middle, is Gianni Infantino, who is, of course, the dictator, uh, the president, rather, of uh, FIFA. To one side of him is uh, Vladimir Putin, and to the other side of him is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, whose name is, and I did look this up, uh, Mohammed bin Salman Al Saud. I hope I've said that correctly. And he's looking, going, oh... Well, that wasn't great. God, no. The, you know, we don't pay these guys the big bucks to defend like that. And Infantino is in the middle going, oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And Putin is there going, sorry about that, mate. Sorry about that. And then they lean across and they have this handshake, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, while uh, the guy from FIFA sits in the middle. And they're basically shaking hands across his groin, his groinal area. And I think if somebody were to paint that picture, if it had been painted in the 1600s or during the Renaissance, art historians and art critics would tell us all the, the, the significance of this. These two powerful men shaking hands, obscuring the very manhood of the man whose organization is in charge of this tournament, as if to say, you will do our bidding. You will do what we want you to do because we, at any point, we can take away your genitals, that which makes you a man, we are the ones who control that. Maybe I'm overthinking that just a little bit, but when that image came up on the screen, I was thinking, oh, well, this is what the World Cup is. This is what football is. It's powerful men. And look at them. Look, they are human. They feel things. Look, they're displaying some kind of emotion that we can recognize, but we all know it's part of an act. It's all a sham. It's all a big swizz. We know they don't feel anything deep down inside. This is just power games. They don't care one way or the other whether the football team wins or not, not like fans and people from the. They don't care. You know they don't care. Anyway, the World Cup is underway and we'll see where it takes us over the next few weeks. Despite the fact there's not a great deal of Arsenal going on, uh, it is a busy show today. In a few moments' time, I'm going to be talking to James Horncastle, who will be here to uh, to tell us all about the potential new signing. We believe it's almost done, but given the way things have gone this summer, chances are we'll do this whole podcast on this guy 
And uh, Lucas Torreira, by the way, is the guy I'm talking about. Uh, we'll do a whole podcast episode on him, and then he'll sign for somebody else the minute I put this podcast up. That's the way things have been going so far. But we will be talking to James about that, about the World Cup as well. And a bit later on, we have got some Arsenal history for you. If you thought the history of Arsenal was absolutely set in stone and there was nothing new under the sun, well, you're going to have to think again. Because there is a brand new book out called Royal Arsenal, Champions of the South, written by Mark Andrews, Andy Kelly, and our very own columnist here on arsblog.com, Tim Stillman. The book uncovers all kinds of new stuff about Arsenal, its history. It deconstructs some of the stuff that's out there at the moment. Is it true? Is it not? And it's a really fascinating piece of work. So I'm going to be talking to those three guys as well, a little bit of Arsenal history. Anyway, as I said, though, Lucas Torreira, a 22-year-old defensive midfielder coming in from Sampdoria, fee believed to be in the region of £30 million. What kind of a player is he? How has he been performing for Sampdoria? What can he bring to the Arsenal side? What kind of a system does he fit into? All that and much more with somebody who knows all about him. It's James Horncastle. Hi, James. Hey, Andrew. Let's uh, talk a little bit about this guy. He came to Italy at a fairly young age. He was only maybe 17 or 18 when he joined uh, Pescara, I think, the youth team there. Yeah, they uh, found him from Santiago Wanderers uh, in Uruguay, which is a, a great name for a, <laughs> for a football team. Um, and he went into the youth system um, in, in Pescada uh, and was coached um, by uh, the brother um, of uh, Marco Giampaolo, who um, is his current coach at, uh, at Sampdoria. And the unusual thing, I suppose, about Torreira is... That background at Pescara has, has uh, drawn many comparisons with uh, Marco Verratti, um, who uh, who is also uh, from there um, and has had this kind of similar uh, trajectory in, in in his career. In that Verratti was was a number ten um, when when he was growing up, and uh, and with time, um, you know, he he became a, a deep line playmaker. Um, and was switched to that position a little bit like Andrea Pirlo was when uh, when he was at Brescia. Yeah. Um, but um, Torreira really sort of started to um, uh, catch people's attention when when Piscata, um got promoted uh, to Serie A uh, a couple of years ago under uh, the former Milan uh, and Lazio fullback Massimo Oddo, uh, 2006 World Cup winner. Um, he was. He was very impressive in the playoffs um, that, that that got them into the top flight, um, particularly against Trapani when uh, he was when he, again he was playing just in front of the defence and Sampdoria had some scouts um, at that game and they decided um, uh, there and then that they absolutely had to have this player um, because at a young age it was clear that he had. A great kind of personality. Um, to, to yeah, he was not afraid to to get on the ball, and to um, and to really be the kind of the store that the, the straw that stirs the drink uh, for, <laughs> for for that team. Um, when we look at defensive midfielders, particularly in England, I think there is a a desire. Maybe we've moved away from it a little bit, but a desire to see a big guy, someone powerful, somebody who can put themselves about, you know, cope with the rigours of, of English football, the physicality that has uh, long been the, the hallmark of English football in many ways. I know many Arsenal fans, there's a hankering for somebody who, you know, maybe isn't dissimilar from Patrick Vieira. I don't think you can keep looking back that way. You've got to accept that Vieira was a once-in-a-lifetime player, and if you keep trying to find the new Vieira, you're, you're going to come up short every single time. But at five foot six, just about five foot six, uh, Torreira is is not quite in that mold, and maybe is a bit smaller than people would expect for a player playing in that kind of a position. So, Absolutely. how is he? How is he used in the Sampdoria midfield? And what, uh, if anything, do they do perhaps to offset some of the just the physical limitations he might have in terms of height and, and winning aerial balls? Okay, well, I think this is um, a role um, that is more common in Italian football than than it is in England. Um, you know, the the idea of having this uh, regista, the the director, um, in, in front of the defence, someone who um, can slow the game down but speed it up um, as well, 
um, someone who you essentially play through and you rely upon to get your attacking game going. Um, I think it's actually quite curious that this summer, Andrew, um, we, we're seeing a lot of interest from Premier League sides in um, players who, who basically perform this role. Um, so, you know, there is a, an expectation that Manchester, Manchester City will sign Jorginho, um, who is a, a very much uh, a similar player um, to, to, to Torreira, who essentially is there to um, knit things together, um, to, uh, to organise play and give his, team, uh, give his team a tempo. Now, the interesting thing about Torreira is that, as you say, he's quite a diminutive player, um, albeit he's, he's quite stocky as well. He's got uh, quite the arse on him. Um, <laughs> is that he's, he, he, he's, pretty, uh, he's pretty resilient um, in, in his ability um, to, hold, uh, to hold the ball and shield the ball from uh, even even bigger, more physical opponents, um, you know, sort of uh, an example that comes to mind. I watched I watched him play uh, live this season against uh, against Milan, um, and uh, they had a guy called Frank Kessier, um, who's a, an Ivorian midfield player, yeah. um, who's uh, who's much taller, much uh, uh, yeah, kind of just a statue of, of, of rippling muscle, and uh, and, and Torreira was able to um, to kind of resist. Uh, the challenges and elude uh, the challenges um, with that kind of low centre of gravity um, uh, that he's got. Um, so yeah, he is. I think one of the things that stands out about him as well is that a lot of people are very keen to make these kind of comparisons, which I must say I, I, I confess I made myself earlier with Verratti and uh, and Pirlo. But he is someone who actually is, is a ball winner as well. Um, and he, 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 he uses, for example, his ability to kind of read the game uh, to do that. But he's not afraid to kind of throw himself about as well. He's quite a, he's quite a dynamic player. Um, you know, you, you, you'll see him throwing himself into challenges. Um, and, you know, he's, he's pretty... Um, pretty resolute and robust um, in, in, in coming away with the ball. Mm. Um, I think the thing, the thing that I look at with this, with this, with this move, move to Arsenal is that he, yeah, he plays in, in a very, very well organized, quite specific system, which is, you know, he plays basically plays in a four, four, two diamond um, uh, with two midfield players, either side who are, who are very dynamic um, yeah, do a lot of running for him because ultimately Torreira lets the ball um, do the running, and you know you will probably see over the next few days stats which show him you know covering more ground uh, than any other player. Um, but that that was very similar to, to, to Pirlo as well um, uh, for his team. Uh, except you know we don't think of Pirlo as being the most dynamic player. I think it, it, it shows that Torreira is always on the move. Um, and, and the great thing about that system for him uh, is that um, yeah he's always got uh, multiple kind of passing angles. You know he's got guys either side of him who he can go to if he wants to, but he's also got ten in front of him um, who he can play to as well, and and that helps. So I'm curious to see um, what uh, Unai Emery um, does with him because I haven't seen him. He's never played in sort of a two in midfield. Um, you know, he's always had players either side of him and someone ahead of him. So, you know, in, in that respect, you know, it'll be interesting to see if if Arsenal, um, you know, will be playing what with a, with, with three um, their their next season. Yeah, I mean, certainly the scope when you talk about a four four two diamond, you could think of two midfielders doing the job uh, that the guys at Sampdoria are doing in Mesut Ozil, for example, as the ten. Um, but what we do know, I think, is from what people are saying, certainly it's been mentioned a few times, is that Emery is going to play a high-pressing game, a high-energy game, and that primarily starts in midfield. So it mm. does feel like that's something that he'd be able to fit into pretty well. Yeah, I, I mean, th yeah, this is a guy who um, uh, won the ball back more times than any other player um, in Serie A uh, last season. Um, which again, just to look at him um, is a, is a bit surprising yeah. um, because you mentioned um, you mentioned his height. Um, yeah, he's he's not uh, he doesn't look the most most physical. But I think that this again comes from 
uh, a vision of play, which um, you know, uh, on the one hand is is when he's got the ball, and on the other, it's it's knowing what other other um, other players on on the opposing side are going to do with the ball, and um, that that helps him in, in that regard. Um, yeah, he's he, he's a, he's a really interesting player to watch because I mean, look, he's still only twenty two. I think this represents a really good. Um, uh, bargain for Arsenal um, in many respects because um, what they're going to pay what 10 million uh, every year for the next three years uh, for him so they're, they're, they're able to stagger the payments and this guy's got a lot of upside a lot of potential because again if you look at kind of all the other if you look at all the other metrics which which kind of look to break down his game you know this is a guy who sort of averages I think sort of 66 passes uh, per ninety minutes, um, which is which is again behind what you you see Jorginho doing, um, which is you know in excess of a hundred. You know he's not as accurate with the ball as you know someone like Borja Valero, who um, was once of West Brom, but has since made a pretty uh, yeah. pretty good career for himself um, uh, in Italy. You know he doesn't he doesn't make as many assists or sort of um, key passes as, as Miralem Pjanic, um, but. There are all the kind of tools there uh, for, for, for Arsenal to have a guy who can basically, you, know, you can give him the keys to the team and he can he can drive uh, whatever passing game uh, they have. I, I wonder if Emery looks at him and thinks, you know, this guy can be my Ava Benega, the guy I had at Sevilla. Yeah, yeah, it certainly will be interesting to see how he's deployed, but it feels like a move that is in some ways made to reconfigure the Arsenal midfield because it has been a little bit all over the place in recent seasons. You know, the the various combinations, whether it's two or three, Arsene Wenger struggled to get them working. So this is certainly going in a, in a different direction. Maybe this question, maybe this is me being um, short-sighted or somewhat stereotypical, but is there something of the South American in him in, in terms of how he plays? Because... Again, we, we, uh, I spoke last week to Paolo Bandini about Stefan Licksteiner, who has a bit of a reputation for, <laughs> for, for cynicism. Um, you know, being that kind of a player, an experienced player, let's say he knows when to make a, a tackle or knows when to make a foul. And th- those are qualities sometimes that are, are, are uh, present in, in South American players. I'm kind of for it because Arsenal have been a very nice team and have been lacking that. So is there, is there any of that in him? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think what's what's interesting about uh, Torreira again, is, and, and this this fits in with uh, the Uruguay side. We'll probably see this evening um, uh, play uh, play in the World Cup. Is that you know, their midfield goes against uh, you know what we've grown accustomed to uh, from Uruguay. Uh, yeah, he's not a kind of um, snarling kind of Yorkshire terrier. Um, you know, sort of getting get, getting after and biting players' ankles. Um, yeah, I think on, on the contrary, he's the he's one of the most fouled players uh, in, in Italy um, uh, last season. Um, so yeah, I think if you look at his disciplinary record, he was booked only six times, um, hardly missed any games. Which you know, I think um, you know from Arsenal's point of view is is maybe comes as relief after watching uh, Granite Shaka uh, <laughs> over <laughs> over the last last year. Um, so. In that respect, he's 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 a bit different. Uh, I, I think um, you know it's it's it, it, you're not going to see any kind of crazy Copa Libertadores uh, sort of you know ripping his shirt off and, and getting into brawls, um, which you know is is might come as a bit of a disappointment for you, Andrew. Yeah, it is a bit. It is a bit. I'm good at now. I was looking forward to some of that, but maybe maybe he'll grow into it. Uh, he he appears to be a fairly durable player as well, in the sense that he made 36 starts for Sampdoria last season. Season 35, the season before, fitness has been a problem for Arsenal's midfield at times. So that's another plus, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, he's been playing. He's been playing at clubs that haven't been competing in Europe um, and don't have a, a, what, a fourth competition um, in in the League Cup. Uh, let's say. Yeah. Um, 
uh, which we see in, in in the Premier League. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he gets to grips with that. Obviously, in Italy, they have a, a, a winter break as well, um, which is is not something that he's going to have um, in England at least until what two seasons? I think we've seen yeah. they're, they're announcing uh, uh, a change bef- um, for, for a winter break coming up at least in the Premier League, and they they, they didn't um, uh, they didn't really make any kind of inroads in the, in the Coppa Italia um, over the last uh, over the last couple of years um, as well. So yeah, he's mainly been allowed to just focus um, on the league uh, and kind of um, have played one game a week, um, which you know I think is, is going to change. But um, yeah, certainly he hasn't had any kind of uh, fitness issues. I think that would have been a big plus when it, uh, when Arsenal came to to kind of signing off. Um, on on this deal, um, you know, we haven't seen him you know, suffer any bad knee injuries in the past. Um, what I can say is that, you know, for all the stereotypes that there are about Italian football being a, a slower paced game, um, when you play in the second division um, like he he did, that's a pretty agricultural, um, uh, tricky, uh, hard hitting league um, to be in. Um, you know where you, you play. Uh, I mean, what the Serie B playoffs are still going on at the moment, and there's the World Cup started. So wow. it's it, it's a, it's an awful long season. Um, you know, which he was able to kind of uh, resist. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, again, as you were talking about that kind of high pressing game um, that Unai Emery wants to bring um, to uh, to Arsenal, Samp, uh, Samp play very easy on the eye, um, but quite avant-garde um, uh, system in, in Italy. Um, yeah, Marco Giampaolo, the manager there, is... Is very much seen as a chip off, a chip off Maurizio Sadi's block. Um, the, the Napoli manager yeah. who's drawn so many plaudits from the likes of Pep Guardiola this season. You know, who like to play high up the pitch, win the ball back. They're very compact. Um, you know, Sam Pacina uh, as as the other side to that. In fact, Giampaolo replaced Maurizio Sarri at Sarri's recommendation at Empoli, and then got the Sampdoria job on the back of that. And it was a bit of a surprise that when uh, when Napoli decided to uh, part ways uh, without parting ways with Maurizio Sadi by uh, uh, firing him but keeping him under contract that Giampaolo didn't get the job there because Giampaolo is seen as very much a continuity guy and, um, and you know, I think yeah, that was probably one of the principal rivals that Arsenal had to Torreira's uh, signature was, was was from Napoli who were looking to replace um, well anticipating that they'll have to replace Jorginho so you know, I think, um, yeah, again, in that respect, you know, he, he's he's resilient enough, um, although it will be a, a different challenge for him, um, the rigours of the Premier League, um, you know, and, you know, he should should be, should be fit in with um, with what uh, Emery, what, how, with how Emery wants this Arsenal team to play. Excellent. I do like the idea of a football club or a team being described as avant-garde. We don't get enough of that uh, <laughs> when it comes to analysing football teams and their styles. Um, so uh, nicely done in that regard. Very quickly, just a quick chat about World Cup. Obviously, started last night. How are you? How are you viewing this this tournament? You know, perhaps when the the award of this uh, World Cup was made to Russia, and shortly afterwards, the one to Qatar. There was rightly, I think, an amount of cynicism about how some of the decisions were made, but. Can you put that to one side? Do you find it easy to put that to one side? Or, or you know, I personally, I, I find it a little bit more difficult these days to, to separate all that kind of stuff from just the football itself. Or, or when it's on, can you just immerse yourself in that? Um, I find it difficult to to put it to one side, um, partly because um, usually I, I go to major tournaments to cover Italy, and Italy are not there yeah. this time around. So I'm not kind of I don't have my head in the sand. I'm not as blinkered as uh, um, as, uh, as I have been at other, um, say, European Championships and World Cups. Um, yeah, already you you see you know people using uh, the World Cup for for, for political gain or, or proper proper reasons of propaganda. We saw mm. um, yeah the Egypt side um, sort of based in Grozny um, in Chechnya and um, you know photo ops with um, Ramadan Kadyrov, which you know uh, have you know provoked outrage and rightly so from from Human Rights Watch. And um, yeah, I think that's. Yeah, in in some respects, the uh, disappointing about 
um, the allocation of, uh, uh, of of these tournaments that you know this these these things should be should be foreseen really and maybe should be part of the the criteria for uh, uh, for, for allocation. Um, but you know it's not the first time. Um, you would be naive to be say it's not the first time that. Um, you know, the World Cup has been held not by a questionable country because Russia is a, a great country. I studied uh, uh, Russian music, music literature and art in my final year, year at university. Wow. It's just the um, uh, it's just the admin, administration. Just as you know, we saw in, in in '78. You know, Argentina is is a is a wonderful country that I I, I, I love going to. But you know, at that time had a had a, a, yeah. a, a regime, a hunter that, um, you know, did some very, very unsavory things to say the least. Um, so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who find it ludicrous when people say that, you know, you, you can, you know, sport and politics don't mix. Um, unfortunately, they, they, they very, they, they do. Mm. Uh, it's been a, a crazy kind of a week, hasn't it, with the, with the Spanish situation, uh, firing their coach on the, on the eve of, of the World Cup, uh, ahead of a game against Portugal, which is probably one of the tastiest games in, in the group stages. Um, who who are your tip to go all the way in this particular tournament? <laughs> it's always it's always difficult, I know, because you know there are maybe four or five teams that could do it, but do you have your eye on anybody in particular? Oh, it's interesting you should say that, Andrew, because uh, my tip um, was Spain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought Spain were being, um, I don't want to say underrated going into this tournament, but of the European contenders, um, they seem to be considered behind um, Germany, which I have no problem with, but, but France in particular. Um, and you know, France uh, seemed to me to be like a, a FIFA team, really, in that <laughs> the video game, in that they generate so much hype because of the immense talent and depth of talent that they've got. But I have not seen France play particularly well or, or get me off uh, off the edge of my seat when, whenever I've watched them. Um, it doesn't seem that um, uh, Didier Deschamps knows his his best team. There seems to be a lot of um, unresolved um, issues in terms of um, selection and system um, with them. Whereas I've, I've watched Spain over the last couple of years um, under uh, Lopetegui um, and they dazzled, particularly against Italy at the Bernabeu and uh, and also against Argentina um, in March. And they, they look... Um, Maybe not as good as they were in twenty uh, between twenty uh, two thousand eight and twenty twelve, but they, they they seem to have played at uh, higher peaks of performance than uh, than, than certainly France. Um, and I think one of the things that always gets overlooked um, about Spain and yeah we, yeah we talk from England and there's there's always the proclamation that the Premier League is the best league in the world when. Yeah, you know, Atletico Madrid won the Europa League. Real Madrid won the won the Champions League. Barcelona almost went undefeated in you know in a ridiculously competitive uh, competitive um, championship. Yeah, uh, this team's got that mix of, um, of of winners from 2008 and 2010 and 2012 with guys who won things at junior level under Lopetegui. You know, either with the under 19s or under 21s and. Um, but now, you know, I, I, I don't know what to what to think because, you know, the, the, the game against Portugal, their first group stage game, is is the trickiest of the group, and they go into it, you know, less than forty eight hours after sacking their manager yeah. and appointing their sporting director. I, I don't know whether this would be like Arsenal sacking Unai Emery on the eve of the Premier League season and I don't know putting Raúl Sanlehi in charge. I don't know, but you know, Ivan it's. Um, <laughs> it's it, 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 it doesn't seem to strike me as a similar situation to what Italy found themselves in '82 and, and 2006, when you know there was scandal sort of on the eve of those tournaments, and yeah, it galvanised Italy and, and, and made the players take more responsibility and really focus their minds. But the fact is, those teams still had managers. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, you know, managers with proven track records like you know Lippi or, or Berzot. Um, I don't really know what to make of. Of Fernando Hierro, who's I think only managed in the second division with Oviedo, who he took to eighth place. So um, mm. yeah, this might be quite a unique and unprecedented situation in which a, a team manages itself um, at a World Cup. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they do it. You know, they have this 
incredible track record uh, in recent tournaments. So very finally, um, maybe it's just me not paying enough attention, but one of the things that's always been a trademark of, of England going into a World Cup has been this probably hysterical build-up of expectation that they can do something in, in, in the tournament. And I don't necessarily see that this time around, whether that's just common sense or whether it's just being downplayed. What, what are your thoughts on what England might do under Gareth Southgate? I mean, we don't really know what kind of a, a manager he's going to be or how he's going to manage this team, but he does seem to have his feet very firmly on the ground. Yeah, I, I would like to think that um, you know we don't overreact um, if um, England uh, go out in the quarterfinals um, again. Um, you know, I think uh, expectation now uh, has been uh, has been managed by you know seeing the golden generation um, you know under under Sven Goran Eriksson and yeah to some extent even Fabio Capello. Um, disappoint, um, but I think you know this team is is young. Um, it's likable. Um, it, it seems to be um, relatable by football standards. I know there's, there's huge disparities in in what um, your man on the street and what um, the likes of Harry Kane earn. But you know, I think the the, the FA and to get Gareth Southgate have done a really good job of 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 um, opening this team up um, in ways that you know it's been closed off. Uh, from us in the past, um, and you know, I think that um, has generated some goodwill towards this uh, this English side, which um, you know hasn't always been there. And you know, I think they also play some interesting football. You've, you've got um, a, a guy who's 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 um, setting England up in in a way we haven't seen him set up for a long time. You know, with with three at the back with players playing in unusual positions but not not necessarily out of position you know like uh, like Carl Walker playing in a back three when mm. um, we've seen him play as a, a, a fullback or, or, or a wing back um, and you know he's Southgate's taken you know even though he seems quite unassuming has taken some some very gutsy uh, courageous decisions you know in in, um, in phasing out Wayne Rooney in, in, in basically telling a big personality like Joe Hart that He's not even um, good enough to be be third choice goalkeeper, um, and this, there does seem to be a freshness about this England side, um, which you know again, you feel it's the the start of something. Um, you know where um, where you, you kind of look at this World Cup and think, yeah, it'd be great if if they do something and they go far, but. Yeah, maybe maybe we should have an eye on on on, on the European Championships in two two years' time. Uh, this the players also seem to, have, to to just really like each other and get on and um, are confident, um, more confident than the public, um, and unafraid to say it. Yeah, uh, which which again is 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 kind of refreshing. So um, yeah, I mean. Uh, so I, I think, in some respect, I, I would never say that the pressure is off with England, um, because although you say you were saying that uh, expectations are lower and maybe media attention is is a little bit more friendly than it has been in, in the past, you, there is already a kind of growing build up around it, which is kind of inevitable, you know, um, before a major tournament, which. Um, I hope we don't build them up to knock them down. I hope we just yeah. we, we we maintain this this level of rationality, um, you know, whatever whatever the results are. Well, yeah, of course, I think that's the way that the uh, the English media have worked uh, down through the years, and certainly in the current climate, there's no way that uh, anything other than that might happen, given the way that football goes these days. But look, we'll see. Come on, Iceland, that's where I am. <laughs> Uh, we'll see we'll see where they go but James listen thanks a million for your time it was very interesting and uh, great to talk to you pleasure if you're not already following James on Twitter you can do so at James Horncastle at James Horncastle and of course you'll see him on the uh, European football show on BT Sport and listen to him on podcasts and read him writing things about football because well that is what he does and he does it very well so thank you again to James Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As I mentioned earlier, there's a brand new Arsenal history book out called Royal Arsenal Champions of the South, and I'm delighted to welcome to the show uh, the three men involved with that, Mark Andrews, Andy Kelly, and Tim Stillman. Good evening to you guys. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Andy, can I start with you? Um, People would assume, I guess, given that Arsenal is uh, a club with a long history that has been examined uh, through the years many, many times, that perhaps there's nothing new to be found out about Arsenal. This book obviously uh, tells us that that there is. Um, Could you just explain why you've gone into the depth you have about the, the formation of the club, the early years of the club, and why it is that you've... Uh, gone back over uh, some of the things that everybody assumed to be true. Okay, well, it's something that happened about seven years ago. I think it's uh, towards the end of 2010. Um, and I replied to a post on Tony Atwood's blog. Um, and it was it was quite strange. It was about a specific game and a specific moment in Arsenal's history that was quite a lot, you know, quite a big part of the club's history. Uh, a game, an FA Cup game against Derby in 1891. And the way that I am, I thought I'd be very clever because I've got a match report for that game from an old newspaper. And I thought I'd send that to Tony. And there was one major item that was missing on the match report. And that was about one specific player that was said to have played in the game and been offered professional terms by Derby because he played so well for Arsenal. And at the time, Arsenal were uh, an amateur club. And I couldn't quite work out why this player uh, wasn't in the team lineup. And I went back and checked other records and other sources, and none of those had him in the in the lineup. And so, you know, it got me thinking, well, what's happened here? And it, you know, it's, it's there were there were other things that started to come out of the woodwork after that, and it seemed to be an awful lot of things eventually uh, regarding the club's history before World War One, um, And so, it, it, you know, eventually Mark joined in and um, we, 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 between us, we worked out that an awful lot of the club's early history hasn't been recorded uh, in the way that it should be. Did that player that you refer to, Andy, did he actually play? Was it a case that he existed and just wasn't included, or what was what was the actual story with that? He 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 um, he did exist, yet, yeah, but he didn't mm. play for Arsenal at that time. He wasn't an right. Arsenal player at that particular time. He was still playing up in Scotland. He joined Arsenal later on that season, uh, later on that year, at the beginning of the following season, after Arsenal had turned professional. Right. But if you were to read every other Arsenal history book they would mention this player as having played in that game and being a catalyst for Arsenal turning professional, which at the time was a big, big thing in London because there were no other professional teams in London and it's very much uh, frowned upon. Well, we we might come to that, but Mark, I want to ask you about the process of of finding out this kind of information because now when we think about history, you want to find out about something, you go to the internet and you look up Wikipedia or you look up some various sources um, when you're going back as far as you guys did it needs a it needs to be a bit more forensic than that was that a big challenge in finding disinformation via old newspapers scrapbooks things like that um, yes um, and any history should be a bit more than Wikipedia but yeah yeah no I know I know no but basically um Andy had a colossal amount of um, work that he'd done. I, I wrote, I, I wrote a, a, a thesis about Woolwich Arsenal in the crowd in 1990, and I was probably in at the same time as Andy was in there, um, whilst he was getting, he was basically working out his match report. So he was working on his match reports. I was working on the crowd and other bits and pieces. And this is a Collindale. So basically, most of the stuff that we we, we picked up was Collindale. Um, but there was lots and lots of other, um, you know, I mean, papers there. But now a lot of the Collindale, now basically Collindale has now moved to um, King's Cross. Um, 
So and and a lot of the a lot of the papers that that we we accessed have gone online, but not all. Right. Um, so the, I mean, basically, we used Woolwich Gazette, Kentish Independent, South East and Herald, um, and the Kentish Mercury. They're the four main um, papers in in Woolwich at the time, basically. Um, and then we picked out other things like you know the club's got Im- images of things and um, you know like a, a cigarette box we found yeah. um, that was given to a referee. Um, uh, really, I mean, it's 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 just you 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 pick up something, you see something. Uh, Andy found the 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 second oldest um, handbook from Woolwich um, because I found a report that said it's a handbook, and he went back, looked at different papers, and found the the reference to the handbook, and we got it from a Kentish uni- um, of a Cambridge University um, place. Um, we didn't know it existed. Yeah, um, but, you know, it's not all, it's not it's not out there. Um, but it is if you if you dig deep enough, um, and and the thing that we we both said to each other was was there's always a there's a an article by the the man who is the founder or the founder with Dan Skin, um, Elijah Watkins, and we both said until we find that article we're not going to write anything on this subject right because because everything seemed to go back into what, what Watkins was saying um, from every book that you read. Yeah. And eventually, we found it, so we could see firsthand what was going, you know, what was going on, and that's, and that's when we started, you know, writing this specific stuff. Yeah, and and you found the exact plot of land where Royal Arsenal played their first game. This was in December 1886. Uh, sticking with you, Mark, how on earth did you do that? Um, <laughs> well, me and Andy were looking at it, and Andy found that the, um, I think it was the Galliford. Um, where he lived, and he lived right next to a pub called the Great Eastern, and we were playing with Easter Wanderers. Um, so we had put it together there, worked out that that was it. It said they had a private bit of land. A bit of land is behind the pub where the pub was. Yeah. Um, it was a bit it was before people have said um, it was um, the Glengall. It was near Glengall Road, but it, 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 the Glengall bit comes in because Glengall, the, a pub called the Glengall Arms was literally next door to the Great Eastern pub. And that's where the rivalry came. That's where the name came from. It wasn't in Glengall Road, which is further up north of the Isle of Dogs. It's down in the south. Right. Um, so we, we, we were doing that and looking at it. And then I, I, <laughs> I was, we were sort of thinking, yeah, that, that's, that's, that, that's good. You know. And then I watched the Time Team because I liked old Phil and his acts and everything, you know, and that old stuff. Um, and it was on, it was on uh, Brunel. And it was basically the about the the Great Eastern ship, you know, going, yeah. you know, being, being built about eighteen fifty odd. And there was an image, and I thought mm, that's interesting. Looked at it, and then we worked with a with, with a with, with a uh, not writer, a um, he's an architect, I think he's an architect, or he does surveying, um, called Matt Clark, who, who's an Arsenal fan, um, and he confirmed that the, the image that we had we given him you know which was from the time team originally but it was just an image from a i think the illustrated london news or something um was exactly from where you you, you stand in you look to the ship in the background being built mm. and in the foreground there's the great eastern pub there's glengall arms and there's other bits and pieces and landmarks you can see on the ordnance maps so it was that really i mean we, we didn't find that picture first Mm. Um, that that picture was the final part of the jigsaw. It was it was part of the process to you know to get to there. And it was just by luck. Yeah, I was watching Time Team basically. Wow, amazing uh, history by accident in in a way. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, that's how a lot of discoveries are made. Let's uh, you know this. We could call it the penicillin um, thing. I don't know how you do it. Anyway, Tim. Um, Part of uh, the first part of the book is about deconstructing some of the myths that uh, have existed about Arsenal's mm. history and putting some of those things right. Can you give us maybe an example or two of, of some of the things that have been accepted wisdom or accepted as part of Arsenal's history that maybe weren't quite right or, or very different indeed? Yeah, yeah. I think um, without giving too much away, obviously, about the book. Um, of course. I, I think I think the, the one that really, really interested me was... Um, this fairly well-known story, and I say story um, advisedly, that Nottingham Forest, that, that the reason Arsenal play in red and white is because Nottingham Forest gave or gifted Arsenal um, some shirts which match the colour of Nottingham Forest shirts. Mm. And I, I think that's, um, you know, I don't think you have to be a massive Arsenal history nerd to have heard that. 
Um, and I think I'm right in saying it might even say that in the Arsenal Museum. Um, but basically, a lot of the research Mark and Andy have done calls that into quite big doubt. Um, so it, it's kind of a, hesitate to say a myth, but it's a story that's definitely grown up, that's passed into history, that's that's kind of been accepted. It's something, you know, I've, I've read, I think, every Arsenal history book going, and pretty much every single one says that, that, you know, one of the founding players, Fred Beardsley, played for Nottingham Forest. And so it's almost that put two and two together, oh, we must have red shirts because um, Fred Beardsley got them from his old club, Nottingham Forest. But that that's there's basically there's very, very big reason to doubt that. Um, and Mark and Andy have done some brilliant research to show that, to show that that's almost certainly not actually true. Um, and if you buy the book, obviously, you'll see why. Yeah. Um, but there, there were lots of things like this, really. I, I think one of the really kind of quite general things that, that um, surprised me when I came to, I suppose, kind of edit the book um, at first draft stage was some of the people who I really, really thought were the movers and shakers actually weren't as significant as I thought they were. So people like um, Jack Humble, for example, who, um, who don't get me wrong, is very important in the formation of, of, of Arsenal Football Club. But I, I thought from reading what I'd read, I thought he was far more prominent than he actually was. Um, I thought that, you know, he, he was like him and David Danskin were like the main guys. And every every history you read kind of says that. But actually, some people I'd only read about kind of in the margins are actually far, far more important and, um, you know, far more significant in shaping some of the things that happened. And, and honestly, some of the um, some of the drama um, as well that happens in those early years because this like this really does move very very quickly from something some you know basically some guys from work put a football team together and within like six or seven years it's a professional football team it's the speed with which things move and the, the kind of the drama and the tension really like really really hits you and um, I, I don't think I'd ever read anything before that really brought that out. Right. Um, so I think those are some of the things that, that really surprised me. Andy, I mean, Tim's talking about drama there. And uh, over the last number of years, we've seen some boardroom issues at Arsenal and uh, people uh, fighting for a majority share of the club. And, and that was true back then as well. Uh, very much so, yeah. We, we sort of like wrote about uh, this in a previous book that we written, which covered the time after the book, uh, the Royal Arsenal mm. book, and um, even when we were writing that that book, um, we were constantly finding out stuff that was happening that no one had ever recorded before in Arsenal's history, and it re- there was a massive power struggle that started round about 1890 and came to a head in 1893, you know, which the cup could have been pulled apart and um, gone out of existence. Um, and like I say, we, we wrote about this before, but now we have found more information that, that takes it back further than we originally thought it started. We'd originally thought it started uh, around about 1892. It actually goes back to 1890 uh, when we moved into uh, a ground called the Invicta Ground, uh, which was purpose-built ground. It was probably the, one of the best grounds in, in England at the time. Um, and like I say, they're, they're, although it started early in 1890, 1892 and 1893, you know, if you, if you think that Kronke and, and Usmanov is is big, you should read what we've written about <laughs> what happened in 18 around that, you know, 1892 and 93 again. What would have happened if it, you know, if one side had had not won out, or if the other side had ultimately failed? Well, I mean, could the trajectory of the club been very different? Well, the the losing side, if you want, actually did try and form their own football team. They were called Royal Ordnance Factories. And uh, within three years of being formed, they went out of business. They went bust. Right. So that could have happened to Arsenal. And they played in blue and white, which is far, far worse. Oh, God, no. We can't have any of that. Um, Mark, uh, the, the move from amateur to professional... Uh, was difficult, apparently. Um, could you explain a little bit why that was and what the significance of Arsenal or Royal Arsenal becoming professional at that period in the club's history? Um, well, I mean, the, the, you know, as, as Tim alluded to, we started off in 1886. 
a um, couple of you know few, few workmen got together from the from the cricket team, um, set things up, and then within five years they'd become a professional outfit. Um, so it was pretty major, really. I mean that they'd you know Arsenal had steadily worked their way up to 1889-90 that season. They won every local trophy that they could win mm. except for the London Senior Cup and then the next year 91 they won it so really it, it, it's it's a it, it's a sort of um, you know they've done everything they could do except win the FA Cup effectively yeah. as an amateur team where where could they go um, you know the, 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 all, all the all the information you know stuff beforehand that said um, you know we were kicked out by this kicked out that we weren't Arsenal, Arsenal resigned um, from you know from from um, from the LFA and uh, London FA and the Kent FA um, because you know they weren't amateur anymore and the Kent FA and the London FA were amateur. Um, I mean the reason our reason Arsenal did it was they kept on they kept on. I mean in the book we've got about six or seven incidents of where the papers suddenly say oh someone from Bolton's down you know at, at the ordnance looking around wonder what they could be doing. Mm. Um, you know, sort of sarcastically saying, "Yeah, we know you're trying to nick, nick our players." You know, there was a lot of the northern clubs that came down did try to take players away. You know, I mean, when and as Andy said before, in the Derby game, um, whilst Boost wasn't playing, they certainly tried to to, to take two or three of our players. Um, they didn't go, but they tried it. Um, so it was much so, as I mean, about protecting the players that that they had. I think uh, it, yes, yes. I mean, there there is sort of um, in the in, in some of the um, AGMs and and, and half you know half yearly AGMs, there's allusions to that. Is that you know if we don't yeah if we don't go professional, then we'll lose all our players because they'll all be taken up by professional players. And also the other thing was with Arsenal, um, most of the players or virtually all the players at that time were also part were also members of the ordnance. They also worked in the factory. Yeah. So they had the protection. If they didn't carry on with football. They still earn a very good wage because most of them were skilled workers um, in the Arsenal. So for the players, it was you know it, it was it was a win-win really, you know, and and quite quite often some of the players who were there beforehand before they turned professional carried on were still paid by the ordnance but not by the club. It's it's, it's, <laughs> it's a very strange um, symbiosis between the two the two. Well, it's not strange, but it's it's obvious because you know it's Arsenal's name, wasn't it? Royal yeah. Arsenal. Well, Royal Arsenal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think that was um, I think that was another one of my favourite parts of the book. They call it shamateurism, um, or they called it that at the time. Where basically, um, I'm going to exaggerate for effect here, but did you ever see that early Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns really wants to win a baseball game against yeah. like a ri- rival nuclear plant? Yeah. And he starts like hiring Major League Baseball players to work in the nuclear plant. <laughs> that's that's kind of. It, Obviously not to that extent, but that's kind of what Arsenal were doing, kind of hiring suspiciously good footballers to work in the factory. Um, and so, you know, but again, before they went professional, they were kind of professional in all but name, really. But, um, I mean, that, that that's another one of the things, isn't it, that actually they, they had quite good jobs um, already and, and Arsenal could really attract good players because they could, they could give the men good work, particularly because, you know, this is the time of the empire, and you know, war is is big business. Um, it's quite regular business for England at this time. So there's always work in an armaments factory. So Arsenal kind of had a little bit of a hook. It's really good work, and it's 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 fascinating, kind of thinking about all of that and thinking about for some players whether they even wanted to go to be professional footballers because you know working in a factory was was such good work in the 1880s that actually being a footballer wasn't necessarily a better career at that stage. And in fact, you know, being being an armaments worker, um, certainly a more long-term career, and, you know, the wages were probably better. It was skilled work. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating, like, looking at the politics um, of that side of it for, for the workers as well as the guys that ran the club. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, you probably had more protection as a, a worker in an armaments factory mm. even back then than you did as a professional footballer. Uh, as we know, players didn't necessarily get looked after very well until much, much later on than that. There's, yeah. uh, there's actually a prime example of that in the book in uh, the sort of player that Arsenal could 
um, or the Royal Arsenal could attract. Uh, and that was one of Preston's invincibles. So the Preston team that won the first ever football league in 1888-89 and the FA Cup, the first team to win the double, one of their players was actually uh, came down to work in the Royal Arsenal and he eventually played for Arsenal. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, that's how that's how you get in the team. Be good at making guns and, and bombs and stuff like that. Uh, Andy, tell me about Red Shirt. Um, he was uh, the, the first ever opinion columnist, and he came from Dublin. Strange parallel to this particular <laughs> podcast. but <laughs> So tell me about yeah, him, yeah. because that's fascinating to me. Yeah, so he, he, he wrote in one of the papers that, that even the papers uh, talk Going back to the um, the this rival that rivalry that um, almost split the club apart, there were two newspapers, one of which was uh, in favour of one of the groups, and and Redshirt wrote for one of the other papers that was in was uh, in favour of the who wrote in favour of the group that eventually won. Uh, but he was very very opinionated, uh, and he would always say speak his mind and calls uproar at the general meetings uh, and other meetings. And, um, you know, he, he, was, he, he stayed on, went to the club, uh, changed its name to Woolwich Arsenal. And, he, I mean, he was he was there throughout that period, was he, and causing ructions with his writing? He was very much so, yeah. And like I say, he was he was um, he would write in favour of the the team that or the, the group that eventually won. So he was uh, he, he seemed to pick the right side. He he also he also in uh, after Royal Arsenal Willage Arsenal he was also a ringleader of causing all of the um, committee to um, resign or the board resigned <laughs> um, in in a, a, over over some. Uh, I can't remember what it was about actually, but he, it was like it was typical of him. He got everyone wound up. They all resigned, and then they said, "Oh, well, not really." So they all come back on the board, and everything was fine. But he he, he was a, he was a real character. Um, I mean, he, he was he was in the army. That's how he come to come to Woolwich. Um, his name was George Steed. George Steed from Dublin. George Steed. Yeah. I was just going to say, so the the power rests um, with you, Andrew. <laughs> now, um, I think the gauntlet has been thrown thrown down uh, very emphatically. There. Yeah. Who who am I to uh, deny history <laughs> being laid in my lap like this? Anyway, guys, look the the book is uh, is fascinating. It's called Royal Arsenal Champions of the South. It's out now, available. Uh, through Legends Publishing. Uh, we've got a copy to give away. I'll give people details of that. But look, best of luck with it and thanks a million for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Thank you. Okay, if you would like to win yourself a signed copy of that fascinating book, all you have to do is answer the following question. Just tell me what year Royal Arsenal was formed. Not that difficult. Send your answer, please, to competition at arsblog.com. That's competition at arsblog.com. We'll pick a winner, we'll announce it on next week's show, and you will get yourself a signed copy of the book, which is Royal Arsenal Champions of the South by Andy Kelly, Mark Andrews, and Tim Stillman. So look, that's just about that. We'll see what the uh, weekend brings in terms of signings and transfers and everything else. We'll talk about all that with James on the Arscast Extra on Monday, so make sure you join us for that. In the meantime, you can, of course, go World Cup crazy watching football at strange times of the day and night, annoying people in your family who want to use the TV, but you go, no, sorry, sorry, football's on. Actually, that doesn't really work anymore, does it? Because people just go, oh, yeah, fuck you. Picking up my phone, picking up my tablet, picking up my laptop, whatever it is. I'm going to go and watch Netflix in my room and you can't stop me, old man, watching football on the sofa with a beer at 11 o'clock in the morning. Whatever way you want to experience the World Cup, hope you have a good time. I will catch you on the Arscast Extra on Monday with James. Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Good evening. Uh, this is Jenny Infantino, president of FIFA, and I would like to assure you that despite what you might have heard earlier in this podcast, my genitals are absolutely fine. They are perfect, perfect genitals. No problem, no harm has come to my genitals from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia or Russian President Vladimir Putin. Because basically they don't like that kind of thing in their countries. So neither do we at FIFA. Despite the fact that we preach inclusivity and football being a game for everybody, if you have enough money we can just look over here for a little while. Until such time as it is in our interest to look back the other way. If you want entire World Cup played in rainbow shirts, cough up the cash, we do that for you, no problem. But my ghoulies, perfect. Do not worry about my ghoulies. My ghoulies are fantastic. People say to me, I have never seen ghoulies anything like those before. They are such fantastic ghoulies, amazing ghoulies. But not here in Russia, no. Or Qatar. Maybe after. Depends on the money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 